First of all, hello London. <laughs> it's so good to be here. I've been in quite a few cities lately, and I was really looking forward to coming here tonight. I know that each of you have come for your own reasons, maybe a question, maybe a concern, uh, could be something positive, could be something uh, more worrying. I wonder if you could just focus for a moment on what is the issue that brought you here tonight? And just reflect on that for a few seconds and see if you can encapsulate that in one word, in one word. And then when you get that word, could you please just shout it out so we can hear? Privacy. Work. Work. Fear. Fear. Lots of fear. What's that? Control. Ownership. Unease. Theft. Theft. Trust. Responsibility. What did I hear over here? This. Accountability, self-defense, freedom. What else? Come on back there, back there. There's going to be a quiz. You can't fall asleep back there. Autonomy. Rights. Okay. So this is really interesting to me, and I'm going to tell you why. So... Uh, this book was published in, um, in the U.S. on January 15th, and I was in New York, and then Washington, and Boston, and then uh, Brussels, and London. And every event that I've done, I have asked this question. So these are different cities in three different countries. And uh, now Valentina has been uh, here for several of these sessions, and she can testify that what I'm about to say is no exaggeration. In every event, no matter what city or country, the same words, the same concerns are bringing us out to discuss what is going on because it does not feel okay. And, you know, when we talk about, when we think about the 20th century, we think about capitalism in the 20th century, industrial capitalism, that was a, a form of power that bore down on the economic domain. It bore down on our factories and our offices. It bore down on us as workers, as employees. But we're not here today because of that. Now, the titanic struggles between capital and society replace those earlier struggles between capital and labor. <coughs> Surveillance capital bears down on all of us. It surges over the walls of the factory and the office, our workplaces, and whatever kind of configuration we have today, into our lives. It bears down on our bodies and our organs. It bears down on our feelings and our families. 
It bears down on the places that we live and sleep and walk and enjoy, our parks and our roads. It bears down on our daily lives, on all of us, on each of us. And so we gather here in this hall tonight as what? Just like an assembled group of people who have no inherent connection uh, except the fact that you're all interested in coming to this talk tonight. But your concerns suggest to me the similarity of your concerns to Boston and Washington and New York and Brussels suggests to me that this is not a random collection of people. We are a new kind of political collective that has not yet been named. They call us users. Not very interesting, not very reflective of political and social and personal interests on the line. And yet, fear, autonomy, unease, freedom, control. These are profound issues that bring us together. And someday, someday soon, maybe this year, maybe next year, maybe five years, we will be organized in new forms of collective action. We will have articulated our shared social and personal and political interests in order to in order to shape our society and the capitalism of our age in a way that serves us and serves our interests. That is my hope. And dare I say it, that is my prediction. <laughs> I say dare I say it because I'm about to define surveillance capitalism. And surveillance capitalism is all about the science of prediction. I assume that not many people have actually read this book yet, right? Because it was just published. Is there anyone in the room who's actually read the book? It's okay. As I said, I'm not going to give the quiz yet. Okay. <laughs> A couple of people. That's okay, because it was just published here on Thursday. So I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to spin out a few uh, little handles, a few little concepts to get us started. And then uh, Misha and I are going to get into it a little bit more, and then, and then we'll all get into it and, and keep elaborating some of the things that are in this book, make it a little easier for you to pick up. It looks like it's a very thick book, uh, but actually it's only 524 pages plus one paragraph of text. So it's, it's not that much. A lot, a lot of endnotes. Well, a big part of the book is endnotes. It's like my armor. Uh, Okay, so what is surveillance capitalism? Um, surveillance capitalism diverges in many fundamental ways from earlier iterations of capitalism, but here is one way in which it pretty much hews to the path. Historians have long described capitalism as evolving uh, through this kind of mechanism where capitalism claims things that live outside the market, that have their own life outside the sphere of the market dynamic, and it brings them into the market dynamic and turns them into that famous word, commodities that can be sold and purchased. So famously, industrial capitalism claimed nature, our meadows, our rivers, our forests, our oceans, for the market dynamic, 
reborn as real estate, reborn as land to be sold and purchased. It famously reclaimed work, the kinds of activities that people did in their, in their cottages, in their gardens, in their fields. Reclaimed work for the market dynamic to, re, to be reborn as labor, labor that could be exchanged, wage labor, in a new kind of marketplace. Surveillance capitalism follows in this path, but with what I consider to be a dark twist. Surveillance capitalism claims private human experience for the market dynamic. It regards private human experience as a free source of raw material to be translated into behavioral data to be fed through its supply chains into its new production process that is labeled with words like artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, machine learning. That new production process produces predictions, predictions of human behavior, what we will do now, soon, and later. I call these prediction products and these new products are sold in a marketplace that now trades exclusively in behavioral futures. Business customers that have an interest in knowing what we will do later. What we will do in our future, our future behavior. Now, this may sound a little strange what I'm saying to you, maybe a little science fiction-y what I'm saying to you. But in fact, this is the structure of those online advertising markets where surveillance capitalism was born. What is an online advertising market? It's a place where business customers, advertisers, want to know what we're going to do in the future, specifically what we are likely to click on. What Google discovered in the heat of financial emergency in 2001 with the bursting of the dot-com bubble was that collateral behavioral data that had, it had sitting around in its servers, data that was spewed off by search, search activities, wasn't particularly organized, wasn't used, they gradually discovered that it had a lot of predictive value. And at this moment of financial emergency, when its own very swanky and glamorous invest in investors, its venture capitalists, threatened to finally withdraw their support in these dark days of Silicon Valley, the founders decided to suspend their rejection of advertising as a source of corruption on the, on the internet and something that would disfigure their, their, search, their search engine and instead to use these collateral data, these surplus data, these leftover behavioral data for their predictive value, which they combined with their already advanced, their already frontier computational capabilities in order to produce what they call click-through rates, just a kind of human behavior that would happen in the future, in this case, what we would click on. And they said to their advertisers, instead of choosing keywords, instead of you deciding where your ad will be placed, we will decide, which is to say our computers will decide. 
based on the data that we can provide them. And this is going to be a black box, and we're not going to let you inside it. We're not going to tell you our secrets. We're only going to tell you the result. But we promise you, if you follow what we say, you will make a lot of money. Well, the advertisers balked at first, but eventually they accepted the proposition. Between the year 2000, when Google's revenue line was about 86 million, and the year 2004, when it finally IPO'd, and the world got a look at what happened in those intervening years during which the logic of surveillance capitalism was invented, its revenues increased by 3,590% on the back of this new economic logic. We did click through. Advertisers did make a lot of money. And this became the, as the crow flies, straight line to monetization, the fastest path to turning all that investment into revenue. It quickly spread to Facebook. Sheryl Sandberg, of course, was a Google executive, very involved in the invention of surveillance capitalism, ultimately hired by Facebook, by Mark Zuckerberg, to bring this new skill set, to bring this new e um, economic logic to Facebook. And so she did. I call her the typhoid Mary of surveillance capitalism. Its success was unparalleled, and from there it became the default option in Silicon Valley. Most of the tech sector, most startups, most apps. But the thing is, we can no longer think of surveillance capitalism as limited to that sector or limited to these giant companies. Surveillance capitalism now spreads across our economies in every sector, in insurance, in healthcare, in finance, in education in transportation, now in automobiles. We come full circle. The birthplace of mass production, the Ford Motor Company. And the CEO of Ford Motor a couple of months ago opined in an interview, we want to have profit margins like Google and Facebook. Where do those profit margins come from? They come from the economic logic of surveillance capitalism. They come from scraping our private experience, translating it into behavioral data, selling it as predictions into new markets for our futures. We want to have margins like Google and Facebook, and he says, there are 100 million people driving in Ford vehicles. Think of all the data we can get from those vehicles and those drivers. And then we combine all of that data with the data we have from Ford Credit, where he says, we already know everything about you. And now imagine Ford Motor as a data giant, a rival of the Facebooks and the Googles, the great surveillance capitalists. So I say this to you to say, here we come full circle. What began as the, as the crucible of a mass consumption society, a mass consumption economy in the 20th century, is now the latest pioneer on the frontiers of surveillance capitalism. Is this the future that we want? Well, the only way we can really answer that question is to lift up the hood and look inside a lot more and to see what some of the consequences are and the deeper 
machinations, these backstage machinations of surveillance capitalism. So I'm going to halt my remarks here, my introductory remarks, and uh, let Misha lead the way so we can slowly unveil the secrets of surveillance capitalism. Thank you. I don't want you to think that this is very rehearsed, <laughs> because it's not. <laughs> it isn't. It's not rehearsed at all. Now, um, it really is a rare pleasure for me to be here this evening interviewing Shoshana. I remember about 10 years ago, I went to see Margaret Atwood at the Edinburgh uh, International Book Festival, and she had just written a book about debt, very interesting book. And uh, she talked about it for about five minutes, and then questions came around. And she said, I'm not going to talk about my book now because you have to go out and buy it if you want to know what I think about debt. However, um, and as an author, it's actually a very good strategy at book festivals. Um, uh, but we are going to talk in detail about uh, Shoshana's book. But nonetheless, I exhort you all at the end of this session to go out and buy her book. And the reason is, this is a landmark piece of work. It is a long time since I have read something that is so analytically acute and important, but also so politically clear-sighted about an issue which is absolutely vast. It is central to all of our societies. And uh, you have made a very wise decision to come and listen to her this evening, because really... This is, a, this is a landmark piece of work, and people will be talking about it for decades and decades to, to come. So we will be able to um, explore it in some detail, but we won't begin to do justification to uh, the, the, book as a, the book as a whole. So um, I, I, I'm going to ask Shoshana about one or two of the concepts that she either coins or, or is in the process of popularizing uh, in her book because they're uh, extremely, extremely important to underpinning the logic of her argument. And first of all, fairly early on, you talk about uh, the three modernities. We talk about, you talk about the first modernity between being mass consumerism uh, a la Ford production, production techniques and the relationship between those vehicles being produced and the emergence of a consumer industry. Uh, and then you talk about the second modernity when communal bounds, uh, bonds begin to be broken and you see a sort of atomization uh, underway. What I'm really interested in is what you think the third modernity which we are entering what is that third modernity, and what does it mean in the digital age? Well, first of all, thank you for your kind remarks, Michelle. Yep, I feel so honored that you are here tonight to, to, to lead this discussion. Uh, uh, such a, a great and auspicious intellectual and thinker. 
And so uh, this is a great honor for me. And um, true to form, you begin with <laughs> the most profound possible question <laughs> that you could possibly ask. So um, let me sort of begin to sketch some things around this question and, and promise that we'll come back to it and back to it and back to it as the evening progresses and we get more tools to actually talk about it. I, I, I use the framing of the uh, three modernities in the book uh, and it kind of goes like this. My grandparents, maybe some of you will identify with this. My grandparents were Sophie and Max and uh, they came from the old country. They came from a traditional place where uh, when you were born, you were your mother's daughter and you were your father's son and your life was foretold pretty much at birth. But they came into a new kind of society, uh, a, so a society of mass production, a society of mass consumption when they came to America. They came into a new kind of world in which, you know, the great Spanish poet Antonio Machado, he said, Caminante no hay camino, se hace el camino al andar. Which means, traveler, there is no road, the road is made as you walk. And that's kind of the theme song of the first modernity. You know, that we left the traditional world and we came into a new modern world, and for the first time we became individuals who had to figure out our own futures. Not everything was written in our blood. Not everything was written in our birth. Then, some point, we were born. And by the time we were born, we not only took for granted the political uh, facts of, of our being individuals and our, not only our right, but the necessity of our having to figure out our own futures, but we were also born with a psychological sense of our own individuality. You know, that, that I'm unique uh, and that uh, I have to find the unique kind of path that will uh, fulfill my potential and my inner vision and my sense of self and my identity and my creativity. These new sensibilities, this sense of psychological individuality, really was born with our generations. You know, this came later in the 20th century, long after uh, Sophie and Max had made their peace with, I've got a car, I've got a refrigerator, America is a great country. The thing is that our lives have been very stressful in the sense that we're born into a world where we have the sense of ourselves, but our institutions really are not geared up to support us. In fact, our institutions have been getting worse. The more we feel like individuals, it seems like the worse our institutions have been becoming. I don't know how bad it is right now in the UK, but I can tell you that in America, you go to sit down with your physician in her office and you get seven minutes. You get seven minutes because she's living under an re insurance regime that requires productivity metrics that only allows her to spend seven minutes. And by the way, she's only allowed to discuss one of your medical problems even though you come with three or four. 
because she will only be reimbursed by the insurance company for discussing one problem with you, and if she discusses the rest, she won't get paid for it. So that's just a small emblematic signal of the gap between our institutions and our own, the reality of our own complex, intricate, deeply felt and, um, and, and deeply lived lives. So in the book I say, we have so much tension in the second modernity in our lives. And we're, we're, it seems like we're fighting all the time. We, when you look at all the research, you know, we've lost our faith in our institutions. We don't trust our government. We don't trust our legislature. We don't trust our parliament. We don't trust our elected officials. We don't trust our journalists. We don't trust our healthcare institutions. We don't trust our educational system. We've lost our trust in our institutions. That was not true for our grandparents. You go back to the mid-century and the you know, people, 80%, 90%, everybody, they trusted business, they trusted government, they trusted our institutions. So we're living in a, real, in a time that is inherently unstable. And the second modernity, there's so much instability, not only the stress in our personal lives, the, 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 <laughs> the tumult that we're all living through now in our political institutions, our political lives. So I posit the second modernity is so inherently unstable, it will have to resolve itself in a third modernity. What will be the third modernity? Well, we've all seen now that there are forces in our democracies that want to answer that question with populism, with authoritarian populism, with a new authoritarian approach, approach to the state. That could be one solution for a third modernity. I offer in the book that surveillance capitalism also has a solution for the third modernity. And that's something that we need to unveil and unpeel in this conversation. What I would like to see is a solution for the third modernity where our institutions, our political and our market institutions, realign themselves with the realities of our lives and serve our needs. To me, that is the healthy resolution of a third modernity. And again, we'll talk more about that. But the question before us now is, what is surveillance capitalism's answer to the third modernity? Because I think as we unveil that, you will see and feel, as you already intuit in the questions that you brought here tonight and the concerns you brought here tonight, you will see and feel even more explicitly the dangers inherent in surveillance capitalism's answer to the third modernity. Just as a, a, a small question coming off that, do you see, um, for example, what, we, what, what, what we're witnessing in China at the moment, that there is a possible community of interest between surveillance capitalism and the populist authoritarian solutions that Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, refers to as illiberal democracy? Indeed. Um, is that, would surveillance capitalism be happy with that sort of, um, you know, coming together of these, of these two models? Okay. Well, 
to answer that question in the best possible way, um, uh, I'd like to backtrack a little bit to just very briefly define the economic imperatives. And I think that provides us with the bridge that we need to then think about the relationship between what we can say about surveillance capitalism and what we are learning about China and some of the, uh, the technological frontier in China that is giving us some uh, very dark, dark futures to contemplate. Okay? Yep, absolutely. All right. So <clears throat> I've said surveillance capitalism is an economic logic. And like every economic logic, it has its own intrinsic structure, its own laws of motion, and its own economic imperatives. Now, these economic imperatives emerge from the competitive dynamics with, within, within the process of surveillance capitalism, within its own logic. So I've said to you that behavioral data is key. We need to feed the machines with behavioral data and the first economic imperative that was discovered was the idea that, hey, these computations, machine learning, machine intelligence, really needs a lot of information. You have to feed the computers a lot of behavioral data in order to get really good predictions. It can't just be a little, it's gotta be a lot. So here's number one, economies of scale. We need to extract behavioral data at scale. So that's how you gradually discovered, you know, you're working online, you're doing things online, you're searching, you're browsing, <clears throat> you're chatting with your, your daughter or your mom uh, in another town or another country. And, you know, the more and more ads are appearing and, you know, and then you find out that your Gmail is being read by the robots to get data out of your compositions of your emails. And then you find out that Street View is going around with the little cars and the little cameras, but oh, whoops, sorry, we're also scraping private Wi-Fi information, private, private information off the private Wi-Fi networks in your homes. And one thing after another, what's going on here? Where, where, why is all this data being, being, being lifted from all these places? And the companies keep saying, oh, it was a mistake, we're so sorry. We didn't know we were doing it, we apologize. Or it was this one rogue engineer who did it by accident and we're really gonna, we're really gonna just tap him on the, on the knuckles and he's never gonna do that again, we promise. And so year after year after year, these kinds of things just kept bubbling up, bubbling up, one sort of global scandal after another. That's the extraction imperative. Economies of scale, we need data and we need a lot of it. Okay, so competition heats up, competition over prediction products. Who's got the better predictions? Well, it turns out that to get really good predictions, we need not only a lot of data, but it would be also very important to have varied data, different kinds of data, economies of scope as well as economies of scale. All right, so now what does this mean? You remember when they started talking about mobile? We're going mobile. Your phone. This is why you have an Android now. 
when Android was invented, the idea was inside Google, people said, oh great, finally we can be like Apple. We can make great margins on our device. We sell the device, we make great margins on the device. We make money selling the phone so we don't have to be so dependent on this data business. But wiser heads in Google prevailed and they said, oh no, 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 no. We don't want to put any friction in the middle of extraction at scale and scope. We wanna just open up those pipelines and get more and more data. And if we make the Android expensive like the iPhone, we're gonna get less data, not more. So the wiser heads prevailed and Android was sold for as cheap as possible to keep those gates open so that you would be on Android all the time, you put all the apps on there, you do everything on there, and everything flows through Android. You're mobile, you're out of the house, you're out of the office, you're away from your desktop. You're not just online anymore. Now you're in the city, now you're in the park, now you're walking around your house, now you're walking around your neighborhood, now you're in your car. Now you're going in a restaurant, now you're going in a shop. You're mobile and they are with you. <coughs> Economies of scope, your body, your action, your location. Journal of American Medicine publishes a study, detailed study of diabetes apps. Diabetes apps, which are um, approved by the Federal Drug Administration in the United States to help you with your health. Turns out as soon as you download most of these diabetes apps, as soon as you download them, they begin to take all the information on your phone. First they take all your contacts, then a certain percentage of them take all your contacts and your camera, then another percentage of them take all your contacts and your camera and your microphone, <laughs> and so on and so forth. The diabetes apps. All right, again, just a small illustration of a ubiquitous problem if you do decide to read the book. You will be convinced of this point because I bring all the data to bear to show you over and over again how this is happening from every dimension. So we have scale and we have scope and competition continues. And eventually it's discovered that the most predictive data actually comes from intervening in the state of play, intervening in our behavior to subtly, always outside of our awareness, shape our behavior, tune our behavior, herd our behavior in particular directions that favor the commercial outcomes that are sought by surveillance capitalism's business customers. Hmm. So, what? Well, there was... <laughs> there's, there's a good example we've got at that, which I, I want to come on, but I think there's a very important point to be made that you make, you make early on in the book where you say key to our conversation is this fact. Surveillance capitalism was invented by a specific group of human beings in a specific time and place. It's not an inherent result of digital technology, nor is it a necessary expression of information capitalism. It was intentionally constructed at a moment. Now, um, whilst I think that's indisputable, there is a slight implication in what you say that it may not have happened. Obviously, the dam has burst now, and surveillance capital is with it, us in, it a, could have not in, a, in, a, yeah. in a big way. But don't you think that 
given the way that it emerged with Google, at some point, some corporate interest was going to work this out, that they could hoover up data and make scads of money out of it. Uh, I mean, it seems to me as though there is a lot inherent in, inherent in digital technology which it's, it would have been difficult for us to avoid. Okay, well, you've asked so many questions right there. Um, all right, so I've been explaining in economic logic with economic imperatives, economies of scope, economies of scale, and this last one, economies of action. Data scientists refer to it as shifting from just monitoring and collecting knowledge to actuation, actually affecting how things behave in order to get new and more powerful data from that actuation. Okay, so what I've been describing is an economic logic. I haven't actually been describing digital technology per se. Now, um, early on in the, in the work I did for this book, I took a month off. Well, not off exactly, but I took a month and I collected every single book in existence that um, the great magicians have written to describe their art, their skill, how they do these great magic tricks. Uh, because I was trying to figure out, like, how do you keep these secrets? How do these, how do these boys figure out how to do this for so long in secret? And then I understood from the magicians that the pivotal skill for every magician is the art of the misdirect, misdirection. So you have to be able to get your attention here so that the trick can happen over here. And part of the art of misdirection that surveillance capitalists have, have perfected is the idea of leading us to believe that all the stuff that's happening is the inevitable consequence of digital technology. There's a quote that I use from Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google. It comes from 2009. Uh, he was being interviewed on, on television, and it was all about one of, this, one of those many scandals that inter uh, erupted worldwide when we found out that our intelligence agencies were dipping into Google's data to find out stuff about us. And everybody was uh, very upset, and so he was on TV defending himself and among other things, the you know, presenter was asking him questions and pressing him a bit hard. And he says to the cameras, look, it is true that we retain data about you. And then he said, search engines do retain. Well, that sentence, as you can see, stuck in my mind forever, it's nine years, <laughs> nine years later. Why? Because that is the essence of misdirection. Because search engines do not retain, surveillance capitalism retains. And this is a fundamental category error that has been imposed upon us. And, if, and, and why should we know better? <laughs> it's easy not to be able to discern this category error, but it is one. In the year 2000, an illustrious group of scientists and engineers at Georgia Tech, great university, great engineering university in the United States, published their report on what they called the aware home, the smart home of the year 2000. And it was just like what we want from a smart home. It was going to 
you know, make the home more efficient and it was going to give us a lot of feedback about our behavior and our, our health and all these things. And then they drew a schematic for the aware home. And the schematic was one simple closed loop. And on one node, there were the devices that were built into the walls of the home. And on the other node were the occupants of the home. That was it. One closed loop. And the engineers wrote in the report, obviously, this is very intimate data. And people are going to want it to be private. And only the occupant can receive the data. And only the occupant decides if it's shared. You fast forward, that was the year 2000. Fast forward to the year 2017. Two scholars right over here at the University of London do an analysis of the Nest thermostat, one single smart home device, Nest, owned by Google. And they conclude that any um, even mildly vigilant consumer should review at least 1,000 privacy contracts in order to have one Nest thermostat on your wall because the Nest thermostat collects data. It also can collect data from other smart devices in your home. Those data go to third parties. The data that go to third parties go to other third parties. The data that go to other third parties go to other third parties. In an infinite regress, nobody takes accountability. The difference between the aware home and the Nest thermostat is not digital technology. The difference is the economic logic that rooted and flourished in those nearly two decades. So, so no, it's not digital technology. Yes, it is surveillance capitalism. Was surveillance capitalism in inevitable? All right, well, here we get into a very interesting topic because surveillance capitalism was essentially invented in 2001, the year, of course, of the great 9-11 tragedy that affected all of our countries. And um, it's interesting that in Washington, on uh, September 10th, 2001, there, were, um, there was a drafts of legislation circulating around the US Congress for a new comprehensive privacy laws. And you, when you actually looked at, look at those drafts of the kind of laws they were talking about, many of the secret operations of surveillance capitalism that I've been describing to you would have been illegal. And scholars write about the fact, people who were there at the time, September 10th to September 11th, in a 24-hour period, the political conversation changed entirely from one about privacy and the threats to privacy from these new tech companies and this online activity of cookies and web bugs and all the things that were already going on in 2001. Now the new fetish was total information awareness. And suddenly these fledgling companies in Silicon Valley with their new just, you know, nascent surveillance capabilities became subjects of some interest and subjects of real interest in the United States to our intelligence agencies who wanted to emulate and integrate the kinds of capabilities that were, that were being grown in these companies. So I call this surveillance exceptionalism, the idea that these, these new capabilities were allowed to root and flourish largely unimpeded by law 
because they could do so outside of the constraints of the Constitution, outside of our legal constraints. So you write about TIA, Total Information Awareness, which of course emerged out of uh, uh, the attacks on 9-11 and uh, the Bush administration's, administra administration's response to this. Um, what interests me here is to what extent did the uh, growing influence of the NSA and other US agencies and the kind of coincidence of personnel between Washington and Silicon Valley, to what extent did you see surveillance capitalism and the national security state start walking together hand in hand after TIA was introduced? Well, you know, there's what we know, and as Donald Rumsfeld famously said, there's the unknown unknown. And um, I'm sure we're all aware that you know, many aspects of this story have, have yet to be told, have yet to be discovered. Um, but, um, I mean, just very briefly, you know, we do know early on, um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that it was like 2005, 2006, somewhere in there, there was already like a, a, it was a classified document that not too long ago became unclassified. It was written at the NSA. And basically the theme of the document was how we can become more like Google. And what it revealed was the very careful study, the deep interest to understand the capabilities, these, the, the, the secret operations that were, that were being invented in these companies, how we could learn from them, how we could emulate them, how we could integrate them. And as they began developing new systems in the NSA, they would say, like, this is our, this is our, our you know, quote, Google search system, you know, because they were specifically trying to emulate these um, out-of-awareness data, data gathering operations that, um, that the Googles and the Facebook, and by that time others were, were developing and perfecting. Um, and then also, you know, we see people from the intelligence agencies actually being very explicit about the fact that we need to work hand-in-hand -hand with the Silicon Valley companies. And that continued right through the Obama administration, by the way. And the Obama administration is a well-known revolving door. I mean, first of all, it was Eric Schmidt and a team from Google that really helped Obama get elected. The first great, you know, virtual presidential election, really groundbreaking, very thrilling in many ways, uh, but actually taking advantage of many of these capabilities that I've been describing to you. And uh, so there was an interdependency in these um, electoral capabilities. There were revolving doors that are well documented between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C., particularly the Obama administration. And then the well-known campaigns, especially of Google, lobbying the government, lobbying the EU, lobbying the American Congress, but also, um, you know, sort of buying its way into civil society, underwriting academic <coughs> research, and, and all the rest. And as you point out, utterly shocking to me, which I, I really didn't know, that Google is funding people like the Cato Institute <laughs> and other Robert Mercer and Koch Brother-funded organizations. They've completely thrown over any sort of pretense of being a sort of touchy-feely yeah. progressive yeah. thing. You know, they're, they're, they're working with some of the nastiest right-wing operations in the United States. All right, so this gets us to... We're on our way to China, 
Yeah. We're still on our way to China. I haven't forgotten China. I have this kind of thought process that works in long chunks, but I don't forget where we're going. And so, may I pick up the story? Because you've just, you've just given me the entrance again to the story. Because when we talk about economies of action, what are we talking about? Okay, we, we're talking about surveillance capitalists using the digital media, right? I mean, it's not the same as technology, but at the same time, surveillance capitalism is unimaginable without the technology, without the digital. We couldn't have surveillance capitalism in an analog world. I mean, in an analog world, you know, we had other things <laughs> that were awful, but not surveillance capitalism in the following sense. Surveillance capitalism commands the digital architecture. Think of the digital architecture as the Trojan horse. Surveillance capitalism in the belly of the Trojan horse. So, what are we really talking about here when we talk about actuation? We're talking about using this um, digital architecture as a global, bear with me now, means of behavior modification. In other words, we want to shape human behavior. We know that we have to do this in ways that, that we don't notice, that, that we don't notice. It always has to be outside of our awareness. You know why. You know why? Because if they ask us permission to take our private experience and translate it into data and make it predictions and sell it to other people, we, we always are going to say no. And all the research shows that when we actually are told what some of these operations are, we don't want any part of it. And yet we keep doing it. That's a whole other discussion. We keep doing it largely because right now we have no choice. But the point is that um, these operations have to be secret because if we know about them, we don't want any part of them. So from the start, they're designed to keep us in ignorance. So now we have actuating behavior and we have evidence of this that you already know about. Because I know that you've read about the Facebook contagion experiments. The first one was they used subliminal cues on Facebook pages to see if they could get people to go and actually vote in the real world in the 2012 midterm elections. And then they announced in their research, lo and behold, you can create a contagion in the online world that affects actual behavior in the real world. Because they could compute how many people went and voted that wouldn't have without the subliminal cueing that they used on the online pages. And then, as the whole world was up in uproar about this, they were already conducting the second phase of the contagion research, using subliminal cues, which means outside of our awareness, to see if they could make us happier or sadder, change our feelings. And when they wrote about this in a scholarly journal, they said, wow, we found out that we can create an emotional contagion through the online medium that affects people in their real life, in their real feelings, and we can do it without them ever being aware that we're doing it. This is incredible, they boasted. <laughs> then Pokemon, may I talk about Pokemon Go? Please. Everyone's come here to listen about Pokemon How Go. How many people here participated in Pokemon Go? Did anybody here play Pokemon Go? Come on. <laughs> I don't believe you. 
Only two people? Daisy did. Oh, Daisy. Daisy. <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> Daisy's mom. <laughs> so Pokemon Go was like a world-class experiment in how you tune and herd populations toward guaranteed commercial outcomes. See, they said at the beginning, it's a little interesting parenthesis, Pokemon Go incubated in Google, born and raised in Google, by the man who invented Google Earth, who then, it was, it was called something else, and it was invested in by the CIA, but then Google bought it, and the man who invented it, John Hankey, went to Google with it, and it became Google Earth. And then he led Street View, which took those little cars all over the world and stripped data secretly from our homes. Well, then he created this lab inside Google, and he created augmented reality games. <coughs> so here's Pokemon Go. And they say, well, Pokemon Go is going to make money because people are going to buy like little thingies for their Pokemon creatures, little flags and little toys and things, accessories for the gym, you know, these kinds of game accessories and, and then, you know, stars and banners and that's how we're going to make money. Strangely, though, later, as Pokemon had been accepted all over the world, it was a rage all over the world, I don't know why, but he decided to tell the FT in an interview, actually, there's this other way that we're really making money. The way we're really making money is when we send them to a pizza joint because there are Pokemon creatures in the bathroom, in the loo, excuse me, or we send them to a restaurant, or we send them to a bar, or we send them over there to get the tires fixed on their car, or over there to go shopping in that group of shops in the arcade. We're really sending them there, not just because there are Pokemon creatures there, and they can win their game, but because each one of those establishments paid us for a prediction of how much footfall would come to their store or their restaurant or their bar as a result of them paying us a fee and being involved in Pokemon Go. So here we have real-world establishments paying for a prediction of our future behavior. In this case, instead of paying for click-through rates and offering advertising, they're paying for real-world, three-dimensional, our bodies, footfall. That's our feet in their real-world establishments, not just advertising on your, on your virtual pages, but in the real world. Well, that's the last time I go to the artisanal cafe on King Street <laughs> in Shepherd's Bush, because they had one there. <laughs> they had one there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, shame on them. Turns out, Pokemon Go was hosting its own behavioral futures markets. Its business customers were paying fees to buy predictions of where we would come and what time we would get there. And they could make those predictions come through because they had the best data ever. They had the data that came from actually hurting us there by giving us the rewards of following Pokemons. 
or giving us the punishments of losing the opportunity to win this next level of the game. You see what I'm saying? This was an experiment in population behavioral modification at scale. The same skills and capabilities that now want to be unleashed on the so-called smart city, which Google likes to call the Google city. Now, the battle in Toronto, this is you know, no longer uh, something that we're talking about as a potential future. The battle in Toronto, public officials awarded Google the chance to take over part of the waterfront and create a new kind of modern city. Here's Google's answer to the third modernity. Because when the public officials said to Google, we're going to give you this contract, you do it. Eric Schmidt was quoted in the Toronto papers as saying, now, finally, it's our turn. Our turn to do what? <coughs> our turn to provide the solution for the third modernity. What is that solution? That solution is computation replaces democracy. Computation replaces politics. Computation is faster, it's more efficient, and there is no conflict. There is no friction. We don't argue because the machine gives us the correct answer. The problem is that in the Google city, in the Google third modernity, the means of behavioral modification, this digital surround that we sometimes make the mistake of calling Big Brother, and I'll tell you in a minute why that's a mistake, I call it Big Other, because it doesn't care what we do. It doesn't care <coughs> if you believe in Big Brother or not. Winston, it does not want your soul. It doesn't care if you adhere to the ideology. And as a Facebook executive said, and I quoted in the book, sometimes people use connection on Facebook uh, to uh, create a terror plot and people might get killed. But still we connect people. <laughs> sometimes people might use connection on Facebook to find uh, their beloved and fall in love and be happy for the rest of their lives. And still we connect people. Whether it produces violence or joy, we connect people because connection is economic growth. That is how we grow through connection. Big Other doesn't care if you are anguished, but all it wants is access to the data that leeches from your pain. Google does not care if you are euphoric. Big Other does not care if you are joyful. But it only wants to ensure that it has that supply chain interface right there at the moment of your joy. Now, Shoshana, I want to open it up in one sec to the, to the audience. But before I do, um, I, I have to say, I generally yield to no person in my pessimism about the world. But I have to say, on this occasion... <laughs> 
I may have to. Um, And that's because there's something which I I didn't see in your book, but which I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say about, and that is about technological responses to surveillance capitalism, by which I mean things like Web um, 3.0, digital ledger technology, (laughs) blockchain technology, whereby we are seeing the possibility, or in fact, simple use of of Tor, of... of, um, Uh, DuckDuckGo and other such search engines, whereby actually we have the possibility now of taking back control of our our data, Uh, particularly with Web.3, when we're going to be able to spread our data around the world so that Google can't get hold of it. Are we seeing, you you talk very importantly in the book about a, a political fight back, but surely we're going to need technological allies in this fight back as well. And, and is there not a tiny little bit of optimism that some of those tools and techniques are emerging? Well, I'm so surprised to hear you describe me as a pessimist, Misha, <laughs> because I'm not a pessimist at all. And I'm, I'm terribly sorry if I've given you that impression. Here's why. Because I've been describing to you a form of capitalism. And I've said to you, this is not technology. This is not an inevitable consequence of this huge structural transformation in our societies towards the digital. This is not inevitable. This is an economic logic. Our societies your society, my society, our democratic societies have long experience taming the raw excesses of capitalism and tethering capitalism to the interests of people, tethering capitalism to the principles and values of democracy, tethering capitalism through law, through regulatory institutions, through sanctioning new forms of collective, collective action in the 20th century, you know, the institution of the strike, the institution of collective bargaining, trade unions, and so forth. Our societies have successfully learned how to tether capitalism to the, our best hopes and our best prospects as democratic societies. This is what the whole idea of market democracy is born on the idea that we could create this kind of equilibrium. Nothing is perfect. I'm not a, I'm not a uh, you know, a, a sort of blind idealist, uh, Pollyanna. Um, nothing is perfect. But market democracy did produce a reasonable equilibrium of reciprocities between capitalism and its societies that it depended upon as sources of customers and sources of employees neither of which is true with surveillance capitalism. So we, t- we ended the Gilded Age, Misha, by using our democratic resources to tame an, a lawless capitalism. And we did it again during the Great Depression, and we did it again in the post-war period. And I believe that we can and will do that again that our democratic institutions, as beleaguered as we know them to be right now, and I know this is a hard discussion to have right now in my country and in (coughs) yours and in many other countries in Europe and around the world right now. 
I believe that our democratic institutions are holding, and I believe and I pray that they will continue to hold, and that we, and this goes back to our very first conversation, that we are not just random users, we are people united in new political interests that have to do with our personal sovereignty, with our individual autonomy, that we do not want to live in a world of stimulus response, where others usurp our decision rights, intervene in our behavior, intervene in our rights to agency to decide what we will do next and next and next for the sake of their predictions to give us a world instead of stimulus response and rewards and punishments, <clears throat> a third modernity of frictionless <clears throat> confluence that is incompatible with democracy and incompatible with the ideals of moral autonomy, both of which are necessary for flourishing democratic societies. So I believe that we will come together out of these emergent, newly discovered social and personal and political interests, and we will create the new forms of collective action, and we will drive our elected officials to the new regulatory institutions and, and laws, some of which has already begun, not enough, but the beginnings are there, and around that, around that space that we create, the, technolo the technological solutions that you mentioned, many of those will become very important. But in and of themselves, I don't regard them as solutions. Sure. Because what they, what they are, are really ways for us to hide from a, hegemon a hegemonic power that is fundamentally illegitimate. So, once, you know, if the only thing we can do is seek encryption, is the only, if the only solution we have is camouflaging ourselves in our own lives, whether it's Tor or, you know, decentralized blockchain or, or uh, uh, um, as some of the young artists are inventing these days, you know, actual, like, um, uh, forms of apparel and textiles that make us invisible to facial recognition software and, and <laughs> disguise our, you know, disguise our faces and disguise our bodies. Hiding in our own lives, to me, is a form of capitulation, not a form, not a solution. Right, well, the, the great thing about, uh, about your book, I mean, I. I see that these are all parts of the same thing in terms of a response. Yes. We need yes. to work together with all of are, these things. They, exactly. they, with a new economic logic and new law, they become critical components. And your book is going to be an invaluable tool in order for, uh, for people to understand what's going on and mobilizing. So now we have the opportunity for the audience to ask questions to you. You can ask questions about whatever you like. Just put your hands up. I'll be um, relatively... I've got one there to start with. I can't see very well from here, so I will be... Um, uh, you, I'll come to you next. Somebody please say China so I can finish this. that. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be able to finish the China. I know. I just... <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I work for a television channel, and we're, I'm here. Wait, wait, where here. are you? Oh, here okay, you there you are. We're, we're incredibly tightly regulated in terms of all ads have to be pre-cleared. Uh, I'm allowed 12 minutes, an average of advertising a day. If I run 12 minutes and five seconds, I get a, a letter from Ofcom. How, and I watched Incredulous for 15 years as the online social digital platforms grew up without a single regulatory constraint on them to the extent that they've now developed a commercial lead that is almost, you know, kind of un unassailable. How come the regulators were so asleep at the wheel? Yes. Um, democracy has been sleeping as surveillance capitalism has flourished, and that online ad environment is uh, one, one expression of that. Uh, well, you know, some of the things we've touched on... Um, I asked the question, sort of a, a larger version of the question that you've just, what's your name, sir? Richard. A larger version of the question or another version of the question that you've just asked. I, I say, well, how, how did they get away with it? <laughs> how did they get, they get away with this sort of global accomplishment with so little pushback? And there are a variety of explanations and I explained 16 reasons to try and understand how they got away with it. Among these reasons, there are some historical windfalls, stuff that they inherited from history that just, they just really got lucky um, and allowed them to, to, to do what you're, what you're describing. So one of these is that the surveillance capitalism was discovered, invented, stumbled upon, organized, institutionalize, um, you know, during a time when our societies, our economies have largely hewed to the neoliberal paradigm, which is an anti-regulatory uh, ideology. And what neoliberalism has done is, is to erode the power of the state, to, to, uh, to make us believe that the state should not regulate industry, and that indeed state regulation is a form of enslavement, a challenge to power, uh, I mean, a challenge to freedom, to free enterprise, to free markets, to the free expression of individuality, and indeed to the uh, free expression, as in the First Amendment kind of free expression. There should be no regulation. That kind of regulation is an illegitimate imposition of power, we have been told. And so regulation has been rolled back in our societies, particularly in the US and the UK, and to varying degrees in other parts of, of Europe and other parts of the world. So uh, surveillance capitalists were able to avail themselves of this. And they drove this ideology to even greater heights. We are the innovators, they said. We are the pioneers. You can't possibly regulate us because you will kill innovation. If you regulate us, you are against the digital. You are against innovation. And that, you know, do you want to be a Luddite? So, they, so in this way, with this ideology, they have essentially um, prevented, you know, the, the, our realization that we need regulation, that indeed regulation is essential. And, and, and a similar thing happened, we, I mentioned the Gilded Age uh, a moment ago. You know, the, the great uh, robber barons, as we now call them, they weren't called that at the time, 
The great robber barons of the Gilded Age used to say, we don't need law. We have enough law. We have the law of supply and demand, and we have the law of survival of the fittest. And other than that, we don't need law. Government, state, rule of law, you stay away from us. This is the free expression of the free market. And it took our societies a while, but we did come back. And we did say, no, children are not allowed to work. Child labor is unacceptable. And we said unfair wages, that's unacceptable. And unsafe working conditions and long, limitless working hours, these are unacceptable. And monopoly is unacceptable. So we got there. But it took us a while and we ended the Gilded Age. So I would say to you, Richard, this story ain't over. That because these operations have been designed to keep us ignorant, we have been slow to name. And naming is the prelude to taming and to unleashing our power and thus the power of our democracies you know, to finally begin to confront this in a new way. Uh, one and two. I'm going to take two. Um... Okay, well, is it my turn? Can I, yes. can I go? Yes. yes. Well, thank you so much. I'm really, really thoughtful. I've been really inspired by the big other, so you've been very influential in my thinking. And I actually have two questions, which I'll try to keep short. So the first one I ask um, as an academic, but also as an educator, as someone who's thinking about how to prepare and fight and... Um, best respond to these processes. Where is the heart of surveillance capitalism? If we look at how to educate, where do we draw from? What, how, do, how, do this, how does this amorphous process, how can we best sort of focus our skills in education to prepare? The second question is quite broad. It's sort of the opposite, about the body perhaps. Um, we're in a moment, and you talked about structural transformation, where I think there's a lot of competing ideas. Data colonialism, for one, which is about, it's, it's similar, it's about the way in which data, data is extracted in a very structural level. There's, you know, the, uh, Facebook is anti-social media. There's all these sorts of things. So how does surveillance capitalism fit in with that global transformation? Thank you. I'm going to take a, a second question as well. Okay. Is that Jude there? Yes. Jude. This is about China. <laughs> Hallelujah. Uh, We're going to get there yet. It's we, a long we, way to China. We have such a very kind of clear sense, an illusionary sense perhaps, that we belong to societies that are free. And then there are other societies that we say are not free. And so we, we create this psychological gap between us and China, as an example. Indeed. And is this part of what is masking our ability to see what's going on because Google, Facebook, etc., they exist in all of these realms. Yes. Doing all the same thing. Yes. And somehow we've managed to psychologically say to ourselves, yes, but we're not under surveillance, yes. not like China. Yes. Thank you. Now, finally, we're going to get to China. <laughs> Maybe we get some good food on the way through. All right. So, yes is the answer. Yes is my answer. That's one of my favorite lines from Love, actually. Yes is my answer. I will marry you. Uh, so I've described to you um, Big Other doesn't care, this digital surround. This is, the, this is the milieu of instrumentation 
through which now these new secret operations that I'm summarizing as behavioral modification can work on, on us, on our bodies, on our groups, on our populations, on our cities, and so forth. A new kind of third modernity. Um, I ask myself, what is the power? What, what kind of power is it that an economic logic can accrue to actually intervene in the behavior of people and, and be so audacious as to intervene and shape, change, alter, direct, herd behavior? What is that kind of power? And always unseen. There's no touching, there's no murder, there's no terror. It's always through this abstraction of the digital veil. Well, I conclude that that kind of power is unprecedented. That this is a kind of power that has never existed before. I call it instrumentarian power. I call it instrumentarian power for two reasons. First, because it uses the instrumentation of the digital milieu, that Trojan horse, as the medium through which it works. Knowledge and also this ability to touch us, to actuate. But secondly, because it turns us into instrumentalized human beings. That big other, as I said, doesn't care about us. It really doesn't want to cure what ails you, but it really wants the data about your disease. So we are a means to others' commercial ends in this operation. Now, when we shift our focus to China, what do we find going out there? For those of you who have read something about the social credit system in China, what we see there is very interesting, and as you suggest, what's your name? Jude. Jude. Hey, Jude. You've gotten that before. I'm not the first one who said that. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, as you suggest so insightfully, um, what, what's happened in China with the social credit system is using the same methodologies that Chinese authoritarian state, authoritarian state, looks at this instrumentarian power these instrumentarian capabilities being developed out of its own internet companies, its own private internet companies. And the Chinese authoritarian state says, this is really powerful stuff. We want it. Not to drive you toward guaranteed commercial outcomes, but now to, get, to drive you toward the guaranteed behavioral outcomes that we want for this Chinese society. So really, we're pivoting from the commercial to the political. This is the kind of society we want. We want a society where everyone pays their parking ticket on the first day. Everyone pays all their debts. And if you don't pay your debt, we know it through all the data that we've got, all the visibility that we've got, and we can shape you and tune you and herd you to go and pay that debt because if you try to buy a first-class ticket on a 
high-speed train, we won't let you have it. If, you, if we know that you haven't paid your debt, you can't buy a first-class ticket on a train. So now life is pervaded with, pervaded with these um, rewards and punishments in order to shape the behavior that fits the political outcomes desired by an authoritarian state. So here is kind of the ultimate dystopian future, the ultimate dystopian third modernity, if you will, one in which now the instrumentarian power invented by private capital in the private realm for private ends, private commercial ends, now merges with an authoritarian state uh, for very different purposes. And when we ask ourselves, you know, what exactly is the difference, as you suggest, Jude, are we so far from China when we contemplate the Google City, for example? Are we really so far from China? And I think the answer is what stands between us and China, again, going back to Richard's question, is democracy. And unless we muster our democracy and create the space for the new competitive solutions and the new technological solutions that will undergird those new competitive solutions, the road from here to Shenzhen is not that long. Um, do you want to uh, answer the first lady's question? Yes. Can you remind me what it was, please? I I strangely can't, but if, <laughs> if, she could, uh, if she could give us just one of those questions, because oh, we, we haven't got time for two, I'm I was afraid. just asking you about the, well, I guess the heart in terms of education, and then the one was how it fits in more broadly with um, the cultural turn towards capturing the, yes, yes. the misdirection of global data empires. Okay, well, let, let me take a stab at at least um, the heart. Can I take That's, a stab yeah. at the heart? Take a stab at the heart. <laughs> well, we have, um, as you asked about education. And um, to be perfectly honest, really honest, from my heart to your heart to its heart, uh, seven years of my life, seven days a week, went into writing this book. Um, and I, I, there are a lot of things I missed that I didn't want to miss, but I missed them for one reason. That I felt that we could not get started on this project. What, what's your name? Uh, what? Zoe. What? <laughs> Zoe. Zell? Like Joe, except with a Z. Oh, I love Zoe. that name. Zell. Okay. <laughs> but we could not get started on this project, Zell until we could really name what is going on. It really, it really upsets me. I find it intolerable that these operations are ubiquitous and designed to keep us ignorant. That they could be so secret for so long that they take pride in bypassing our awareness. That they rob us of the future tense without our right to say no, without the right to combat, without the right to exit. This I find profoundly illegitimate to the point of being intolerable. And so my belief was that we have to name, we have to unveil, and I'm not saying that my book is the beginning and the middle of the, and the end of that effort, 
but I certainly hope that it is a contribution to that effort. And that as we name, we can teach Zill and we can educate. This is an economic logic. This is not inevitability. This is one, uh, one form of power, solution to the third modernity, but it is not necessarily our third modernity. It is not our solution for the third modernity. We choose our futures. That's who we are. And if individualization and the ideals of autonomy and the ideals of moral courage and the ideals of democracy, if those ideals seem, if those ideals seem too idealistic, I say, in the long arc of human history, the enlightenment from which many of these ideals originate, the enlightenment is five minutes ago. And as, and as imperfect, again, you know, I have this argument with my daughter all the time because I cry when I read the Bill of Rights and she said, Mom, there are no women and there are no people of color. This, this is terrible. And I say, it is deeply imperfect and I understand what you feel. But this was a beginning and without this beginning, we couldn't have that conversation. Anyway, I believe that humanity <laughs> sacrificed so much over so many millennia to get to these notions of human autonomy, of the sanctity of the individual, of the possibility of the self-governing demos. I will not relinquish those ideals. So this to me is the heart zeal that we have to name, that we have to know, that we have to understand, that we have to unveil the misdirection, that we have to strip back the euphemism, that we have to reject the obfuscation. And in naming, we come together, we discover our shared interests, we move into the political realm, and that's when we change capitalism as we have done before. Well, there's nothing more that I can add to that. That's an absolutely fantastic way of ending. Just, I, I will underline that the naming, the codifying, it gives us this tool. Shoshani, you've given us a tool which we are now going to be able to use and direct towards political action. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But before we finish, you wanted to read a couple of passages from the book, which are the ones that were inspired by your daughters, or you'd like to read to your daughters? My daughter and my son. Your daughter and your son, I beg your pardon. Don't beg, no reason. Uh, my daughter and my son, 23 and 26. Let me ask a question. How many people in this room are parents? Okay, thank you. Let me ask another question. How many people in this room are under the age of 35? Okay, so what I've just learned is that everybody in this room either has children or is children. <laughs> All right, so I wanted to read these two paragraphs, possibly three, because um, 
I wrote these for you. I wrote these for you to read to your children and children. I wrote these to read to you. All I have to do is find them. So just give me a second because this is not my copy, which is all dog-eared. Even my own book. Here we go. 521 for anyone who's interested. <laughs> Very near the end. All right. When I speak to my children or an audience of young people, I try to alert them to the historically contingent nature of the thing that has us by calling attention to ordinary values and expectations before surveillance capitalism began its campaign of psychic numbing. It is not okay to have to hide in your own life. It is not normal, I tell them. It is not okay to spend your lunchtime conversations comparing software that will camouflage you and protect you from continuous, unwanted invasion. Five trackers blocked, four trackers blocked, 59 trackers blocked, facial features scrambled, voice disguised. I tell them the word search has meant a daring existential journey, not a finger tap to already existing answers. That friend is an embodied mystery that can be forged only face to face and zil, heart to heart. And that recognition is the glimmer of homecoming we experience in our beloved's face, not facial recognition. I say that it is not okay to have our best instincts for connection, empathy, and information exploited by a draconian quid pro quo that holds these goods hostage to the pervasive strip search of our lives. It is not okay for every move, emotion, utterance, and desire to be cataloged, manipulated, and then used to surreptitiously herd us through the future tense for the sake of someone else's profit. These things are brand new, I tell them. They are unprecedented. You should not take them for granted because they are not okay. If democracy is to be replenished in the coming decades, it is up to us to rekindle the sense of outrage and loss over what is being taken from us. In this, I do not mean only our personal information. What is at stake here is the human expectation of sovereignty over one's own life and authorship of one's own experience. What is at stake is the inward experience from which we form the will to will and the public spaces to act on that will. What is at stake is the dominant principle of social ordering in an information civilization and our rights as individuals and societies to answer the questions fundamental to a new information world. Who knows? Who decides who knows? Who decides who decides who knows? 
Right now, it's surveillance capitalism that sits in the catbird seat and answers these questions on our behalf. But it is we who must supply the answers to these questions. We must do so. We and our democracy. Thank you. very much. It only remains for me to say to all of you, go out and buy her book now. It's the smartest thing you'll do this year. And to Shoshana Zuboff, thank you very much indeed. <laughs>